Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we have a unique part one of two shows with my next guest, Dr. Eileen Hilton. We first met her when we were talking about different types of Medicare plans. We've had her on before, and we will talk more about that next week as open enrollment starts in the Medicare world. But she runs Crown Care, and we'll discuss that further uh, next week as we talk more about what to do and how do you know what Medicare plan might be best for you. But Dr. Hilton has another unique attribute that we're going to hear about tonight. She has over two and a half decades of experience in clinical infectious disease. And not only has she done that, but she's also done research on vaccines and vaccine development. And in addition, having hailed from New York, she has some colleagues who have been sharing with her firsthand what this entire pandemic has been like, which may be a way for us to think about what might happen here in the islands if we do have a second wave or even a third wave. So I want to thank you for joining me today, this evening, and looking forward to this is our part one of two almost seemingly totally different separate shows. But I want to thank you, Dr. Hilton, for taking the time to be on with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Now, when we first started talking, we were talking a little bit about coronavirus, and you mentioned a couple of unique things about this particular virus. You know, we all know it's a novel coronavirus. It's a novel issue. We haven't dealt with this in the human population to this degree in the past. But it also has some properties of being highly contagious and has some unique reasons why we haven't seen it before, and it's you know, we're wondering how it is that this transferred into the human population. You've got decades of experience in infectious disease, and you were dealing with infections in the height of the HIV crisis and epidemic in the 80s. And what's what's making this such a unusual event right now? Well, it's the rapid and extensive spread. I mean, I remember in the very beginning, there were only a few cases, and then unbelievably rapidly spreading. So, for instance, in New York, um, one of my friends is a GI doctor there. She called me up to complain how ridiculous it was that the uh, mayor was shutting down an area near her house and, and telling people they really had to stay at home, etc. This was in the Riverdale area, about in New Rochelle, up in uh, New York, in the northern part of New York City. And she was outraged. She was saying, I can't believe it. How in the world could they shut us down over this? We've been through a lot of different epidemics, et cetera. There were one or two cases. Within four weeks, four weeks, there were 63,000. It was unbelievable. So we were just like, oh, my God. And she called me up afterwards and said, you know, you were right, and I was wrong. This is really scary. So that, that was my first introduction to the New York cases, and that, that was a while ago. Uh, unfortunately, it's starting up again, and they just called me today, some of the people I know there, and told me uh, they're, they're shutting down other parts of the city, mostly in Brooklyn, but other areas in Queens, et cetera. So it's starting again, and with the cold weather comes more spread. So why is that? I know that the cold weather, people might stay indoors more. Is it, you know, we do see a lot of colds and flus that occur when there are seasonal changes. What is it in particular that makes the cold weather 
make this virus potentially spread even further? I think I think it is that they stay indoors and that the I, the contagion is much greater inside where there's less ventilation um, and people are are you know getting sick and tired of doing all of these things to protect themselves, which they have to keep on doing, and that's mask wearing, washing your hands, staying out of large groups. All of those things are becoming very fatiguing. They've got COVID fatigue. And that's the worst thing that could happen because once you let your guard down, that's when it really takes off. Now, for a lot of folks, we're sort of looking back to the 1918 Spanish flu and saying, how is this similar and how is it different? And I know in reading about the Spanish flu, it sort of had this surge in like February, March, April of of, tw- of sorry, 1918, mm-hmm. and then it sort of quieted down a little bit over the summer, and then they saw right around the fall, right around now, September, October, November, a second surge, and then it sort of quieted down a little bit, and then the third surge in the spring of 1919. Are we... When we talk about the second surge, are we in the midst of that here in Hawaii, or is that something we really haven't seen yet? I don't think I don't think you've really seen it that. I mean, it was it was quite it was quite impressive uh, just recently because it went up way way higher than the first surge. Um, but I wouldn't have called it the second surge. I thought it was like a kind of a hump, a second hump in the first surge. Um, and I'm hoping we don't see what they saw in the influenza, but unfortunately they are seeing it in other places. We are fortunately a lot warmer. People can stay outside more. It might be better here than it is there. When we talk about being outside, does UV light, I mean, is it more like being out in daylight because the UV can somewhat inactivate the virus, or is it just being outside in general because there's fresh air? Is I there... think it's the fresh air, yeah. And UVC is the one that inactivates it. Um, but the concentration of UVC outside, although it's there, is not as great as when you see these machines going around in the hospital sterilizing the rooms with UVC. It's, it's definitely helpful to have that fresh air circulating around you uh, when you're outside. Now, what we're seeing here in the islands is, you know, we have some of the same similar characteristics as what they have in New York. We've got in some cases, people living in small spaces, multi-generational families, uh, not necessarily the urban density that there might be in a place like New York City, but we do see some of the same elements that we need to be careful about. What are some of the similarities and some of the differences in the challenges we might face here in Hawaii compared to what they faced in New York, just with some of the potential risk factors? Well, you know, there there are there's a propensity for certain groups either because of genetic predispositions et cetera to have a higher risk uh in new york it's it's more of the black population um and of course socioeconomic uh identities are are also important and crowding crowding of families multi generational families and small apartments in new york the density in New York is greater than here, but there is a high degree of density in some of our areas here, and it's with extended families all living in the same place. And unfortunately, with the Kabuna living, with the younger people, that is what could lead to something very similar as to what happened in New York in certain neighborhoods. Well, and I would hope to think that we've learned a little bit from 
the experience. Unfortunately, it hit first um, in a major way in New York, and we didn't really know about some of the treatments that might be the best because it was it was novel. So everyone was talking about ventilators, and now we're finding maybe don't rush to ventilators. Try some other things like laying down in bed, what they call prone positioning, and doing some other sorts of treatments. We now have some treatments that people are using remdesivir, and there's some folks doing convalescent plasma, dexamethasone, some of the other treatments and oxygen that are available So we've learned somewhat, but when we think about the logistics, if you're living in a household where you have grandma and you have kids and then you have grandkids and there's a lot of density but maybe separate rooms, is it good to try and even in your own home keep distance if you happen to have a job that takes you into an area that is potentially an exposure risk? Absolutely. And I get asked questions like this all the time um, by friends and neighbors, you know, that they may have been exposed, what should they do? And I say, please make sure you use a different bathroom because there's GI spread of COVID. Please try whatever you can do if you have two bathrooms to use that bathroom and not have anyone else use it. Uh, Additionally, try to isolate yourself and the family as much as possible. Wear a mask when you're around them. Um, These are the kinds of things I would recommend to anyone who's asking me if they were exposed and they have anyone living at home with them, what should they do to keep that person safe? Sometimes it just won't work, but you can do the best you can to try to keep everyone safe. Social distancing, washing your hands, you know, sterilization, etc. Now, in some cases, people have even suggested wear a mask at home. If you're out there in the workforce and you come home and you have elderly people and relatives that are in the household, You know, go directly to your room, take off whatever clothing you were wearing, shower, wash your hands, kind of make sure that you're limiting any potential exposure, even bringing it in, and just trying to avoid putting anybody else in that position where they might be washing your clothes or doing something that could expose them. Does it take a lot of the virus to cause an infection? I know we've talked about it being like highly contagious, and and it's, it's just something that could be in the air. But how much actual viral exposure do you think would need to happen for someone to get an exposure from, for example, like a household exposure, not from the person, but from other household goods? Have we seen that? I don't know about um, contagion from, uh, say, when you go to the supermarket. I always come home and sterilize everything. I'm spraying it with an alcohol, 70% alcohol, et cetera. But I, I haven't really seen that much in the way of reports of contagion that way. However, it makes sense if it can be, if it can be isolated from um, an inanimate object, uh, a box or whatever, you know, and grown, and you can see it, or PCR, and you can pick it up by that way. It's definitely potentially infectious, so I still do it. Um, but I think it's, it's more important the number of minutes you spend with an individual in an area that doesn't have good ventilation, like 15 minutes is what they say, if you're 15 minutes or more. And I'm not sure there are any studies that absolutely prove that, but it certainly is something that most people would recommend. And to try to stay away from family members as much as possible if you know you've been around someone, say you're working in healthcare or you're you know, going into people's homes for one reason or another, and you have no, you know, way of controlling whether they have it or not, I would, I would say wearing a mask at home isn't crazy when you're around someone who's elderly, to be, 
the safe side. Now, one of the questions that's going to come up is as we look at expanding and opening up the state for tourism, could we potentially see people that could be asymptomatic, no fever, negative test, come and actually bring the virus during that 72-hour period? And I know there's a lot of thoughts on this, and one of the thoughts is, well, right now we're not testing anybody that comes in, so we're telling them to self-quarantine for two weeks. At least we'd have some type of a test that would be done that would indicate if someone is safe to come into the state, and that that may actually alleviate and reduce some of the potential infections. Do we think that that's enough for us to do to make sure that we're protecting all of the folks here? Are there some some other extra precautions that visitors might want to take or any of, the, any of us who might be dealing with visitors might want to take? Wear your mask, gloves, wash hands, anything yeah, all else? all of the above. The, the, the reality is, is that many of the people who are, quote, quarantined here were not really quarantining. I mean, you know it when you walk around and you see people who literally are shooting their cameras, they're getting on boats. They're not, they haven't been here for a month and then started to go outside, and we know many uh, are getting away with it, but I think the testing coming in 72 hours before will pick up some people. However, you're only as good as the test was done. For instance, you know, in the White House when they were testing, the people were tested immediately with an antigen test, which is known for its false negatives. So you had people coming into a meeting saying, gee, I'm completely fine. And there could have been a super spreader in there who tested negative and spread it. Um, You can be negative one day and positive the next, but still have been able to transmit, especially if the test was, you know, an inferior test or something that wasn't always going to pick up all the positives. Similarly with taking temperatures. The usual thing I tell people is, If you take a temperature in the morning, you're almost always not going to have a fever, even if you are infected. And the reason why is there's diurnal variation during the day of your temperature. Your temperature is lowest in the morning because your cortisol rate, one of the hormones similar to taking cortisone, okay, will lower temperature, and you will not see somebody have a fever, even if they're sick, okay? And I remember growing up, my mother would always say, you know, don't tell me you have a fever at 7 in the morning. You're going to school. Nobody has a fever at 7 in the morning. So I think that's where I learned that first, but then I learned it again in infectious disease training. So when somebody had a fever in the morning, there was something weird going on, either a central nervous system reason or a vasculitis reason, but it didn't necessarily mean that they actually had an infection. So I think that sort of failed as a way of testing people coming in. Uh, I think they've realized that. And I think that um, testing people coming in at the airport might work, but that's ridiculous because unless you have a rapid saliva test or something that's a reliable test that's quick, you're not going to get results until they're gone. They're already gone and they're in a hotel or somewhere else. Interestingly enough, I was at a meeting where they were discussing that certain areas uh, of the world are requiring a test to come back into their country. Japan is one of them, and that's where a lot of our tourists would like to come and visit us from. Uh, 
and how are we going to go about getting them back home without supplying them with rapid testing and something that the Japanese authorities would accept as valid so that when they got back to Japan, they could get into Japan. Now, that's an interesting thought. So, anyway. A whole nother, a whole nother question that we really haven't looked at or addressed. Yeah. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Hilton some more about vaccine development because there are some in the works. And given her many years of experience in running trials to develop vaccines, what sort of things might be out there that could be effective and what would be the best scenario for when we might see one available? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm lucky enough to have Dr. Eileen Hilton on the line. She's got two and a half decades of experience in infectious disease, She's hearing from colleagues in New York about how the situation was and the second wave that's coming and also has many years of experience in clinical research with vaccine development. Now, right before the break, we talked about adequacy of testing and doing some testing would be helpful, but something I never thought of, requiring testing to go back to another country. And if Japan does require that, how would that be able to be facilitated? So we have yet to figure out all the details, but we do have hopefully a little bit longer until that situation arises. Now, you mentioned that some of the tests can provide false negatives, and that's always a concern because if it's a false positive and we can repeat it and confirm it to be negative, that at least picks up all the people who are infected. But a false negative could miss people who are infected. And one of the things that I know is a concern is that if you test too soon after a potential exposure, you might not be testing at the right time frame. So Mm -hmm. if you've got an exposure maybe on a plane and you test immediately on arrival, uh, you might not actually have enough virus exposure and replication in your own body to show a positive test for a couple more days. So do we know when the ideal time is to do a test? Is it about three to five uh, days after symptoms? Probably day three through day 14. And day 14 is not a strict cutoff. They've had cases that showed up after presumed virus inoculation 29 days and longer. So it's a, that's what makes it nasty. <laughs> you, know, you think you're safe and maybe you're not. to get positive tests. That would be unfortunate, you know, trying to find somebody who has it if they uh, got exposed quite a while ago. And, you know, 14-day quarantine is what we say. It's useful. It's been working. But honestly, I think there are many outliers, and we don't know how many. And it's hard to quantify. I don't know if we'll be able to figure that out. No, until we start seeing a little bit better testing early on and follow, you know. Now, vaccine development, that's something that's been in the works. And a lot of different companies have decided to start doing some trials with vaccines. Some of them are even in phase three trials right now. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of experience with vaccines. When you've been working to help develop them, what's really the time course? And is it realistic to think that, In such a short time, we've decreased all those steps to make it something that will provide a safe vaccine that is as efficacious as we need in such short time frames? Well, you know, it used to take about 10 to 20 years to develop a vaccine. And it was uh, grueling to have to go through vaccine development 
a lot of the uh, pharmaceutical companies really didn't love it because once they got the vaccine out there, there were a lot of lawsuits from, you know, post, uh, post-approval, you know, where people started having side effects and things like that. Um, so it, it's amazing how fast it's happening now, and it's actually wonderful because in the old technology, we used to have to grow weakened virus and chicken eggs Nowadays, you can grow them in insect cells or mammalian, uh, and those weakened viruses were either injected after they had been weakened uh, with an adjuvant, something to make them more active in our immune system, to stir up the immune system, or um, without the adjuvant. And that's many of the vaccines that we've had as as, uh, children and adults. Now they have a new technology that's gene-based. So this particular virus has had the genome deciphered, and these drug companies uh, have taken, for the, for the ones who are using the uh, new technology, have taken sections of that genome, target pieces, right? And there's something called CRISPR technology where they can cut little pieces of the genome up and either attach it to something that's going to deliver it into the um, viral uh, cell, whatever, um, or uh, send it in uh, without anything, and it would then become an immune stimulant and stimulate your immune system to have significant immunity against the vaccine. And typically, vaccines that are even 50% effective are considered acceptable. It's amazing to me, but it's true. I mean, many of the vaccines I've tested were 60 70% effective. We thought they were just terrific. So people go, well, why would I take this? It's only 50% effective. Well, believe me, if you got COVID, you'd be very happy that you had anything that was effective at all. So, and also if the entire population gets vaccinated, you're protecting a lot of the people who are susceptible, much more susceptible than younger people. So that's the concept almost of herd immunity. If you have enough people that either have immunity from having had the illness or from having a vaccine, then there's fewer people that you may come in contact with with an active infection. And therefore, statistically, everybody is less likely to get exposed if everyone has some degree of immunity, even if it's not 100%. Right. And that would be great. Um, the main thing is that we want something that persists and lasts. Some of the early data has shown that vaccines can give you a lovely, robust immune response, but that immune response may not last as long as, as previous vaccines. So it could be more like an influenza where you need two shots, uh, and, you know, in, in a very bad year. And then, again, you might need a shot every single year. And honestly, I don't see that would be as bad of a thing as as people might think. You know, we're encouraging people to get flu shots. You know, I think if we had to have a yearly coronavirus shot until this pandemic truly became under control, I think that should be something that is considered a potential good outcome. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. When we talk about people getting respiratory infections like coronavirus, it's transmitted through air particles and it's transmitted through coughing or some other type of way. I know they've talked about a transmission through GI tract issues, and that's a whole nother, a whole nother ball game. But 
we've we see people washing their hands, wearing masks, trying to keep social distancing. We're also seeing fewer cases of influenza and fewer other respiratory infections because people are doing the same basic precautions that are actually helping them for more than just coronavirus. Absolutely. That's right. So the main goal is to keep to keep doing that, to do all of those things so that the actual uh, hospitals don't get overwhelmed. The most important thing in this is not to have your hospital overwhelmed because then a young person who's had a car accident who is a trauma case, there's no ICU bed for them. You know, this is the kind of thing that went on in New York. Or a stroke patient or a heart attack patient, there's no ICU bed for them. So it's not so much that you need to um, tamp down completely so that this, this thing is no way on earth, even on the earth. You just need to keep it under control until they can develop vaccines and to develop uh, prophylaxis, like Tamiflu, for the flu, and treatments like remdesivir, which they're doing now, which is fairly decent treatment, and dexamethasone and various other things that are in development. So I think looking at the goal, the goal would be keep our hospitals open and functional, keep our ICUs open. You need to have beds available for people young and old who get sick from other things as well. Otherwise, you don't, you're just going to be New York all over again with um, trucks, refrigerated trucks for the bodies that were coming out of the hospital. It was unbelievable. I'm sure some of your colleagues had some pretty heartbreaking stories. Did any of them get sick with COVID? Yeah, um, I don't know. A lot of them died, actually. Um, some of your colleagues? Uh, you know... Goodrich, who was a famous guy who separated the conjoined right. twins yes. in New York, uh, he went to medical school with me, and he was one who died. Um, the chairman of medicine at one of the hospitals I worked at, lovely guy, died. They had him on an um, uh, ECMO machine. I, I'm sure you know what it is, but your, your listeners may not. But this is not something we normally use. It's like a heart-lung machine. Yeah, it oxygenates the yeah, blood. Yeah, he and, failed the ventilator, and, oh, wow. and he, it took him like two months, and he passed away. It was unbelievable. And several others died as well, um, not as well known, but very concerning. You know, when, when you know the people personally, it makes a much bigger effect on you. Absolutely. And it brings yeah. it, unfortunately, it brings it all home, literally. Yeah, yeah. The concept of losing people that you know that you went to school with that were in the healthcare profession. Anybody who is lost from a virus that, that we have some potential to prevent, it's truly heartbreaking. I look at what's been going on in the other neighbor islands, and it just it says to me that we need to think about this as a global pandemic, which we know that it is. But also we have to think of it as not just what the effect is on me, but the effect is on everyone, including those people that I'm around. You know, we yep. talk about potential exposures and any time that, you know, I go to my office and I go to my clinic and I see patients, there is the concept of a potential exposure. So making sure that the people in my household are safe and they're able to feel protected is important. And, you know, it's not just the person who gets sick. It's also who else in their family might catch it, who may not have the same immune system and capacity that they do. 
So it could put, you know, some of these multi-generational families where there's older people in the household or even people who work in healthcare. You know, if you have someone in your household that happens to work with elderly Kapuna and they get sick and they don't get a major case or they don't feel like they're that sick and then they unfortunately unknowingly bring it to some of the older people who could potentially have a much more significant reaction. It really is something we have got to take seriously, and I'm glad to hear that our case numbers have reduced in the last couple of days, and hopefully that will continue. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. That's Dr. Eileen, Eileen Hilton. She heads Crown Care, and next week we're going to talk about her other activity that she does, helping with Medicare consulting. So do hang in there, everybody. Continue with your hand washing and your social distancing and wearing a mask. I want to thank Dr. Hilton for sharing her expertise. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week with Dr. Hilton. We are down by the riverside in New Orleans with Dr. Michael White's original Liberty Jazz Band, Cajun flood music from Michael and David Doucet, plus conversation with the riverboat captain and a Native American singer at the Mississippi River Headwaters. It's on American Roots from PRX. Saturday evening at 6, following Weekend All Things Considered.